Well, it was the summer of 1975 when Kevin finally reached the end of his rope. And he was only 25 years old, but he had grown up his entire childhood hearing from his dad uh, that he was worthless, that he would never amount to anything, that his life had absolutely no value. And his father uh, brought those words to life with hands that showed not love or kindness for his son, but rather contempt. And so at some point, Kevin began to believe that this was all true, that he truly was worthless, that his life would not amount to anything. And so Kevin turned to alcohol, and later he started using drugs just to try to numb the pain and to try to quiet the voices in his head, telling him that his father was right. And so by the summer of 1975, Kevin had had enough. And he decided that that it was time to do something about this. And so in the middle of the night, Kevin drove a stolen Chevy pickup truck to a secluded location where no one would see and no one would hear what was about to happen. And he turned off the engine to that truck and he picked up the pistol that was in the seat next to him. And he looked down the barrel of that gun and he heard the voices in his head saying, what are you waiting for? Do it. And some of you here this morning know exactly what it feels like to be in that place of total despair, total defeat, feeling like no one sees you, no one knows, and no one cares, and what is the point of living anyway? And if that is you this morning, I want you to know that God sees you, that he knows you, and that he has the power to change everything in your life for your good and for his glory. And I believe that God has a very special purpose for you here this morning. If you've been with us this summer, you know, as Robin said, that we've been studying the attributes of God, and we've seen that God is good and that he is holy, that he is worthy and he is faithful. And what I hope you'll see this morning is that the Father is great. We're going to look at the greatness of our God this morning. And I want to start by asking you this question. What comes to your mind when you think of that word great? What are some images that come to mind when you think of greatness? Maybe you think of of something like this. This is uh, a picture of Mount Everest. And this mountain is located in Asia. It's uh, on the border of Nepal and Tibet. And it stands over 29,000 feet tall. It's the highest peak in the entire world. And thousands have tried to reach its summit and hundreds have died trying. And I think you would agree with me that Mount Everest is a picture of greatness. Here's another one. This is the Amazon River. And uh, the Amazon is located in South America. It's the largest river in the world by volume. It's nearly 4,000 miles long. And during the wet season, it can reach 120 miles wide. And just for a point of reference, that's about the width of the state of Indiana. The Amazon River is certainly a picture of greatness. Here's another one. This is the Dubai Tower called the Burj Khalifa. And at over 2,700 feet tall, it's the tallest structure, tallest man-made structure in the world. It has 57 elevators to access its 163 stories. And it's constructed of over 31,000 metric tons of rebar. It has over 28,000 glass panels on its exterior. How would you like to be the window washer on this building? I mean, would that not be absolutely frightening? Uh, But think about the job security, right, with almost 30,000 windows. I think you'd have to agree with me that the Dubai Tower is a picture of greatness. One more picture of greatness this morning. How about this guy? 
Uh, if you don't know, this is our lead pastor, Paul Mumaw. He, uh, he stands six foot two and about 185 pounds. He graduated something cum laude from Anderson University. Uh, loves jogging and preaching and playing with his dog, Louie. And uh, I think we would all have to agree that this dude is a picture of greatness. Now, as you think about these pictures, and Dan, you can take that down. It's just going to be a distraction from this point forward. <laughs> As you think about these pictures, you realize that there are different ways that we measure greatness. We talk about height and we talk about width. We talk about feet. We talk about miles. We talk about gallons. Uh, we can talk about IQ. These are the metrics with which we measure. But when we talk about the greatness of the Father, there are a couple of things that we need to realize. And if you're taking notes, the first one is this. We cannot measure God. It is impossible to measure God. How do you measure an infinite being? How do you measure something that has no beginning and no end? His greatness is too much for us to describe. King Solomon understood this as he was preparing to build the temple of the Lord. And we read in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles where King Solomon says, The temple I am going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him? Since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. And what Solomon understood was that even with our understanding of the enormity of the universe, it still isn't big enough to contain God. As we continue to push the limits of space and to, to find even farther reaches of it, it will always fall short of the greatness of God. And so Solomon says, if the very highest heavens cannot contain him, then how could a temple built by human hands? It cannot. His greatness cannot be contained. It is unending. It's infinite. And therefore, we cannot measure God. The second truth we need to understand is this. We will never know all there is to know about God. And let me just say, if you've been around church for a while and you find yourself satisfied with your knowledge and your understanding of God, let me just say, uh, you are worshiping the wrong God. Your God is way too small because we could spend all of eternity and followers of Jesus will spend all of eternity increasing in never-ending knowledge of God. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century reformed theologian and he said it this way, speaking of followers of Jesus, he said, their knowledge will increase to eternity and if their knowledge doubtless their holiness for as they increase in knowledge of God and of the works of God, the more they will see of his excellency. And the more they see of his excellency, the more they will love him. And the more they love God, the more delight and happiness will they have in him. Every moment of eternity will be a new revelation of God's goodness and his grace and his love and his holiness. And the result of our ever-increasing knowledge of God should be our ever-increasing love for the Father. And that's what I hope has been happening in your hearts this summer. If you've been with us throughout this series, as we've increased in knowledge about who God is and what these attributes mean, I hope that your heart has been increasing as well. That's the goal for today, that as we talk about the greatness of God, that our understanding would deepen and that our love would increase. I want to frame up the, this, this message on the Father's greatness, talking about God's three omni-qualities. And that word omni just simply means all. That word comes from the Latin, and, uh, and these qualities are, are essential to the nature of God. 
you, you need to know that we could spend unlimited time talking about each of these three omni qualities. Uh, I'm going to cover them all in about 15 minutes, so you can know we're just barely going to scratch the surface on these. The goal isn't to go into great depth, but rather to give you a basic understanding of what each of these qualities is, and then to address a common misconception about each of them. And we're going to move fairly quickly, uh, so I want to encourage you to have a pen handy. You might want to jot down some of these scriptures and look them up later. But the first omni is this. The Father is omniscient. The Father's omniscient. And if I were to put this into simple terms, I'd simply say, God is all-knowing. He's all-knowing. Psalm 139 is my favorite place to go when I think about God's omniscience. Verses 1 through 6 say this, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And before our word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And David affirms here in this psalm that God knows everything about us. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He knows our motivations. Before we even speak a word, he knows what it will be. God's omniscience means that he perfectly, completely, absolutely knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And in Psalm 147, we read uh, that God determines the number of the stars, and he calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Listen, I've said this before. We don't even know how many stars are out there. God not only knows how many there are, he's the one who put them there. And he knows each one of them by name. So we see that God not only knows everything about you and everything about me, but that God knows everything about everything. He knows everything about the universe because he created it. His understanding is limitless. There is nothing that God doesn't have perfect knowledge of. That's what we mean when we talk about God's omniscience. He has full knowledge of past, present, and future. Now, some have argued that to say that God is omniscient negates our free will. The argument would, would go something like this. If God knows what I will do tomorrow then that means I'm not actually free to choose it. If God has foreknowledge, then how can I have free will? And here's the reality. This is true for all of these omni-qualities that we're going to study this morning. You and I are finite, created beings, and we're trying to wrap our minds around an infinite creator. And what we often do when we can't understand something is we bring it down to a level that we can understand Listen to this quote from uh, the book Top, Tough Topics by Sam Storms. It says, But what if the foreknowledge of God and the liberty of the will cannot be fully reconciled by man? Shall we therefore deny a perfection in God to support a liberty in ourselves? Shall we rather fasten ignorance upon God and accuse him of blindness to maintain our liberty? And what he's saying is essentially that if there's something about God that we can't understand, the tendency then is that we will make God the ignorant one. We'll say God's the blind one. If I can't understand this, then there must be something wrong with God so that we can remain smart in our own eyes. 
But I want you to know this morning that regardless of our inability to understand how all of this works, the omniscience of God is compatible with the free will of men. The fact that God knows what you and I will do and say and think tomorrow does not mean that your free will has been violated, but it may mean that God's power is greater than our ability to understand it. And you can take comfort in this, that when you come to the place in your life where you hit a wall and you don't know what to do, you don't know where to turn, maybe it's in your job or your relationships or your parenting, uh, whatever it is, you can be encouraged because God's knowledge of the events in your life is absolutely comprehensive, and nothing takes him by surprise. He knows everything about you, and he knows it perfectly, and he knows what you need even better than you do. The Father is omniscient. The second omni I want to tell you about this morning is, is this. The Father is omnipresent, and if I were to put this into simple terms, I would simply say God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And if we were to go back to Psalm 139 and pick up where we left off, uh, starting in verse 7, here's what we'd read. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And David reminds us that God is different than us. He's not limited to time and to space as we are. He is present at every moment in every point of space. In Proverbs 15.3, we read, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And so God's omnipresence means that he sees absolutely everything. His eyes are everywhere. The prophet Jeremiah agrees when we read in Jeremiah 23, 24. He says, who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth? And so what we see this morning is is just this reality that if we've ever done something and thought, no one knows. No one saw it. No No one knows. We got away with it. Your actions and my actions may have escaped human eyes, but the Lord saw in great detail and in plain view everything that we've done. There is nothing that escapes his presence. And Jeremiah reminds us there is no place to hide from the Lord. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. And that might be a sobering and a frightening thought for you, depending on what those secret actions have been. But more so, I hope you can find comfort in this. And to know that when you are at your lowest point and you don't feel like you have a friend in the world, that you can take heart. God knows you and he is present with you at every moment and he will never leave you nor forsake you. But here's what God's omnipresence does not mean. God is not a part of the creation. New age thought is that God is actually a part of uh, the earth, that he's part of creation. And hear me clearly on this. He is not. God is the creator, not the created. He is over and above his creation. And to think that God is in a tree or, or in the wind or any kind of container that limits him, any kind of physical border or boundary, that's incorrect. God's omnipresence and his involvement with the creation should not be confused with being part of the creation. He is active and involved. He is not a part of or contained in creation. The Father is omniscient. The Father is omnipresent. And finally this, the Father is omnipotent. And in very simple terms, we would say God is all-powerful. 
He's all-powerful. Now, I want to start this one uh, with what God's omnipotence does not mean, because I think some of us who maybe have heard these terms before, or even those of us who just have heard that God is all-powerful, uh, we probably have, at least at some point, come up against a wrong definition of what this means. And so the wrong definition would be this. The wrong definition is to say God can do anything. That is not an accurate definition of God's omnipotence, because we know from Scripture that there most certainly are things that God cannot do. We read in his word that God cannot lie. We read that he cannot even be tempted to sin. God cannot do anything that would be against his holy character. So we can't say that God's omnipotence means he can do anything. But here's the better definition down below. And this is uh, from Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology. He says, God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. So whatever God's holy will is, he has the power to do it. And Psalm 29 is a great place to turn to see a picture of God's omnipotence. Here's what it says. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He breaks the, in the pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And what David understood when he wrote Psalm 29 was that God's power rules completely. Both the heavens and the earth, the animate and the inanimate, humans and animals alike, God has power over them all. And I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 1, to the fact that it was with the Lord's voice that he spoke everything into being. He, he literally spoke it into existence. And here David reminds us of the omnipotent, all-powerful voice of God. He tells us that with a word from his lips, the earth's uh, it shakes, that the forest is laid bare. He tells us the voice of the Lord, it strikes with flashes of lightning. And it's a picture of unbridled power and strength. And with that strength, he rules over everything. And it's a great reminder that there is no danger and no threat, no disaster and no trouble that God's omnipotent power doesn't reign over and you can know that in the New Testament, when Paul writes that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, that God has the power to do that. When your life feels like it's spinning out of control and you can't see how those pieces could possibly come together for something good, I want you to be reminded that God is omnipotent, that he has the power to do all of his holy will. So God is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And when we think about these omni-qualities of God, it becomes apparent that God is not like us. He is different. He is set apart. He is higher than us. And in that, it can make you wonder why he would care about you and I. 
I mean, have you ever thought of that? If God knows everything that you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, he's seen everything that you've ever done, and he's this all-powerful being, has it ever crossed your mind? Like, why, why would he still care about me if he knows all of that? David wondered the same thing when he wrote in Psalm 8:4, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. God, you're so great. You know everything. You see everything. You're all powerful. Why would you care about me? Have you ever wondered that? I started my message this morning telling you about a pivotal moment in the life of my friend, uh, Kevin Jacks. And I'm happy to tell you that the story didn't end the way that it could have. And Kevin agreed to come this morning and to finish uh, his story for us. So would you welcome my friend, Kevin Jacks, to come up to the stage? Kevin goes to the, that is not supposed to happen. Kevin goes to uh, our Noblesville campus, and uh, when I spoke, you can come on up, Kevin, grab that mic right there. When I spoke on God's faithfulness several weeks back, uh, Kevin came up and introduced himself to me, and uh, we went and grabbed coffee together, and Kevin shared with me his story. And uh, it was at that point that I was thinking through this message and thinking, Lord, what this is, this is so academic in nature to talk about your omni qualities. What's the practical application for this? How does this make a difference for the lives of the people at Genesis Church? And uh, right there, the Lord brought Kevin and shared his story with me. And so I asked Kevin if I could share his story with you. And, and I brought you right up to the point, that pivotal point in Kevin's life, uh, when he was in the truck, feeling completely uh, worthless, complete despair, ready to end his life. And so, Kevin, would you just fill in any details that I might have missed in that story? What you were feeling, what had brought you to that moment? What had brought me to that moment um, was was my life living on my terms. And um, like, you know, Ben said that my my father was not a reinforcing figure. He was he was a um, dismantling figure in my life, my brother's life, and my and my mother. And um, I had tried so many times to turn myself around, um, and it's not possible. It wasn't for me. And anyone that wants to try it on your own, it, I can tell you right now. It won't work. Um, and I, I had gotten to a point where things had gotten so bad that I saw no way out of the pain other than just standing at all. So that's where I was. Yep. And so sitting there in the truck, uh, one of the things that you told me about uh, was just hearing that voice in your head of, what are you waiting for? There's no point in living. Just do it. But then another voice came in, and uh, that voice changed everything. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, now I'd heard that voice in my head that, that I wasn't any good for so long, and it, it just reached a point where it was, you're, you're not any good, and you never will be, so finish it now. And that's Satan. You know, he is constantly on the look for somebody that he can either control or destroy. And at that moment, you know, your mind thinks so much about what this act is going to do. And 
I did not hear an audible voice, but I, I heard a voice. And I know now that it was Jesus Christ, and he, he told me, he says, you, you have tried everything else. Why not try me? You have nothing left to lose. And uh, Kevin, when we, when we met too, I thought it was uh, really interesting that as I shared from Psalm 8 this morning of David's feeling, you know, who am I that you're mindful of me? You had that same kind of a moment when you surrendered to Jesus Christ in that truck that day and you put that gun down. There was that thought in your head of who am I? T tell us about that. Yeah. Um, you know, things don't change overnight. And when I uh, knelt in the, in the front of that truck, I, I just prayed, Lord, Je you know, Jesus, if you are real, save me. I, I, I cannot do this. I, I can't do it on my own. I, if you can do it, I need your help. And um, I, I did. I have always felt insignificant and even today while we were uh, talking earlier I thought you know I, I am so little you know but God's love is so great it, it's awesome yeah you uh, I, I thought it was funny when we were talking you said uh, I don't even come from a one horse town yeah. I come from a come from a half horse town yeah. and, uh, with all the all the people in the world, yeah, our our town was only about ten thousand people, and and I did. I I felt like you know God God is so everywhere, and you know it it funnels down. I I I just you know never knew numbers, but now we know you know that there's six hundred billion people on this earth, and you know God's watching over the entire earth. And 300 million people in America, you know, all the way down to 10,000 people in, in my little town, but yet he was right there in that cornfield, and it was just me and the crickets. I mean, that's it. And he saw you. And he saw me. Yeah. And he reached in, and that was, he, you know, he, he knew that was my moment. Yeah. So... I think the coolest part of your story, Kevin, comes quite a bit later. And uh, just to, to kind of skip to, to around 2010, your father was still living. Mm -hmm. uh, same guy as he had always been, but your heart had changed towards him and mm -hmm. receiving Christ. And you always loved your dad. You always uh, pursued your dad, but he never reciprocated. But it came to a point uh, in around 2010 where your dad was sick. Mm -hmm. And he needed somebody to take care of him. So jump in there when you brought your dad back to, to Indiana. Um, he, he, was, uh, he was at a point where he could no longer take care of himself. He, he still tried. I mean, he was, a, he was a guy that lived his life, his way, his rules. And uh, he, he still tried that. But I, I knew uh, I, I had to do something, so we brought him to Indiana. And I had prayed for my dad since I had become a Christian. I knew that prayer was what was going on for me before I became a Christian, so I kept that up for my dad. And um, I limited our dealings, but I knew that I, I knew that, I knew that if, if God could turn my heart, he could turn my dad's. 
and um, he was in a nursing home. I had went to see him. We were sitting on the bed. We were talking. My dad was in the um, early stages of dementia, but this day he had a very clear day. We were talking. He was rational, and um, he says, uh, this is all my fault, and I just was floored. I, I, you know, at that point, I was about 58, 59 years old. I had never heard my father in my entire life ever say he was sorry about anything. And he says, I, I just asked him, I said, well, what, what are you sorry about? And he says, all of this. He says, being here, Stella, that was my stepmother, she was gone now, she'd left him, and... Just all this. He said, this is all my fault. And I, I just knew <laughs> that the Lord was opening a door. So I just prayed, Lord Jesus, you know, give me the words to say. En enable me to lead my father to you. So we prayed. Uh, you know, I, I helped my father through that. And I asked him if he understood all that. I asked him if he agreed that. And, and he did, and he accepted Christ that day. You know, he was like 83 years old, 82 years old, I think 83. And um, I, I, by the time he passed, he was back to being the, the dad that I saw the good side of years and years and years ago. You led your you led your father to Christ there in his yeah. last days. Is that not cool? Thank you. Kevin, I've told you this before, but one of the things that I think is so great about your story is that it's not just about God seeing you and saving you, but that in his foreknowledge he also had a plan for your dad. And after thirty years of praying for your dad, mm -hmm. you saw the fruit of that. If there were someone here today that was hearing all of this and just feeling like, God, that's true for Kevin, that might be true for others, but it just doesn't seem like it's true for me. I don't feel like God sees me or knows me or cares a bit about me. What would you say to them? Um, I, I would say you're, you're wrong, and I can personally <laughs> vouch for that. I, I believe that I, I had opportunities to accept Christ earlier in my life. But I believed that I was such a bad person that he would have nothing to do with me. That I, I was too bad to be salvaged. And that is not true. You know, the scripture tells us that, you know, God uses the ignorant to confound the wise. He uses the base, you know, the, the everyday people, you know, to bring about his change is what he wants. And I just, I've told Ben before, I, I take the Bible literally. I, I believe everything in the Bible. I don't, I don't leave out one little thing because it doesn't fit with what people say today. And I, I just know that he has his eye on each and every one of us he has a, a plan for us, and it's us that get in the, in the road. It, it's our own selves. And that when you finally 
give in and you allow God into your life and, and you know, you accept Christ as your Savior, things won't change overnight, but things will change. Well, Kevin, I want to thank you again for sharing your story with our church. I love you. I love your story. I love what God's done in you and through you. Would you uh, help me thank Kevin for being here this morning? Thanks, brother. So to bring this to a close, I hope that what you've seen this morning is that no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, that we serve a God, and there is a God who sees you, who knows you completely, and who has the power to change everything for your good and for his glory. And the proof of his love for you and for me, John tells us in 1 John, that it's because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us that we can know. We can know what love is through that. It was Christ's righteousness for our sin. It was his death for our life. And the God who is all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, he sees you and he loves you, and he has paid for your sins with the powerful blood of Jesus. And I just want to say, if you are living without hope today, if you are living in that place of despair, that place that Kevin found himself in, all the way back in 1975 in the middle of that cornfield, the, the details may be different for you, but the circumstances may be very similar. I want you to know, and I don't want you to leave this place this morning without embracing that God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he is a powerful God who has done everything necessary to bring you back into a hope-filled relationship with him. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know that God, I want to pray for you after the service. I would love to talk with you more about a relationship with Christ. I'll be here. Kevin's going to be hanging out with me up front. We would love to, to hear your story and to share with you uh, the story of God. Let me pray for you this morning. Father God, I thank you so much for your revelation of yourself to us that we can look to your word to see that you are a God who is, is great you're a God who, who sees all who knows all who is all powerful and Lord that even in the midst of those mighty omni qualities Lord that you care about us that you love us that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son to die for us, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, I think we could spend eternity asking why, but instead, Father, our hearts are just turned to praise today. Our hearts are just turned to you to say thank you. Thank you for loving us, and Lord, if there are those here this morning who don't know your love, I pray that you would draw their hearts. I pray that they would respond in boldness that they would respond to the love of Christ this morning, that they would leave this place full of hope, Father, because of your greatness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.